Hello, everybody, and welcome to the ninth episode of the Bad MotoGP show. Uh, we are here to discuss the races in Italy. I just came home from the 24 hours of the Nürburgring and managed to watch the uh, MotoGP race live and then afterwards uh, rewatched Moto2 and Moto3. So I have nothing prepared. This will be completely freestyle. Um, but yeah, Kilen, you enjoyed the races and how are you doing? Hello, Leo. Glad to be back again for episode nine of the Bad Moto GP show. As always, we make it happen. We even do different types of motorsports and we still make it happen. My yeah. man Lee is out here at the 24 hours of the Nürburgring and we still bring you the show because that is what we are here to do. We bring you the news, we bring you the controversy and we bring you why we hate some riders and why we love most of the others. So yeah, I'm doing really, really well. Mugello is just the royalty of European motor racing, is it not? One of the most beautiful tracks in existence, in my top three for sure. And of course, the track did not disappoint. We had three epic races, in my opinion. All classes delivered, as they mostly always do. And yeah, we're going to cover it from top to bottom uh, right now. What do you think, Leo? I mean, uh, first of all, overtaking in MotoGP is back. We uh, had some issues there over the first few races where overtaking wasn't at a premium but now i mean it's the problem isn't solved but you uh due to the long straight overtaking is easier and we saw some uh, incredible overtakes i mean the ducatis we have to start with peco i guess uh the ducatis are uh, very very good now we discussed earlier in the season that the gp22 uh, had some problems but it seems like they fixed it now uh, it's at least on par with the gp21 I would say. And yeah, yeah, Peko, he had a terrible start. He fell back to like eighth or something. I don't remember. And um, he managed to fight through the field and uh, take advantage of the, I don't want to disrespect them, but those aren't riders that necessarily belong at the front, the slower riders. Um, but yeah, Fabio, he was a sitting duck, he overtook him and he was gone and he had some serious pace. I'm very impressed because that's the Peko uh, everybody thought we would see uh, in the season. And apart from his little, um, from his little mistake in uh, Le Mans, when we take the last uh, three races, Peko's back. Yeah, Paco's back and there's a question of Paco ever left. I mean, to your credit, Leo, this is what you have been saying, it must be said. Uh, Paco had a great race, he really did. Um, like you said, he had a tough start. Um, I'm not sure what happened, uh, but he had a difficult start. He got swallowed up. He went back to eighth or ninth, as you said. And in the first few laps, he looked like a man on a mission, literally, well, not literally anymore with Mission Minnow. I was going to make a sponsorship joke, but now I can't. Thank you, Ducati. But anyway, he was on. A, he was a man on a mission, looked really good in those first few laps, like you said, overtaking everybody left and right. And the BT Sport commentary here were actually correct. Neil Hodgson said in our broadcast that he looked unusually aggressive. And I have to agree with what Neil said, because I think he's right. Um, usually Paco is the smooth overtaker. He waits for the openings and then he takes advantage of them. What was different here about Paco is that he forced the openings instead of waiting for them. He was much more proactive in his overtaking than he normally is. And that is actually a very good thing for Paco. Um, like you said, I'm not taking anything away from the riders who find themselves at the front because 
you have to have some ability to find yourself at the front, but they're not the usual front runners that we would expect, not the Marquez's, the Zarcos, the Jorge Martins, and so on and so forth. But they were at the front, and that's uh, to their credit. But once Paco got into the lead, he never let like giving it up. And that is, you know, even though he's probably the single most abused man on this channel, that is the Jorge Lorenzo performance right there in a nutshell. Maybe not starting at the front, but you get to the front, you never get into a dogfight, and you never let like surrendering the lead. And to his credit, Paco Banyaya did that perfectly. Every corner perfect, every straight perfect, just didn't miss a beat. And yeah, he was truly magnificent, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, uh, the Jorge Lorenzo com um, comparison is usually pretty accurate because he has a good qualifying. He has a very, very good start usually. And then he will lead the race and win the race like he did in Jerez. And yeah. if you're in these kind of situations, you can be more careful with your overtakes because you have to overtake one, maybe two riders. But now mm -hmm. when you're back in eighth, in the midfield pretty much you have to overtake everybody especially if you see that those riders aren't necessarily a competition for you yeah i would assume that when peko sees mark bezeki and luca marini he will know okay i'm faster than these guys and yeah. fair enough he is so uh, no fault of um no fault to think that but um today he doesn't seem like Jorge lorenzo he seemed like valentino rossi old school because uh, Vale doesn't use, uh, didn't used to have uh, good starts and uh, he fought his way through and won the race eventually. Like a good example is Phillip Island 2003, where he uh, was like eighth and he was eighth, like Peko. Hey. And, and he finished 15 yeah. seconds ahead of everybody yeah, else. You're absolutely right. I mean, uh, it's a different time, but. He uh, was very, very aggressive because he had to. I mean, nowadays you can't sit behind the rider and wait until your front tire exploded. So he had to make those moves like Fabio. Fabio had to make those moves early in the lap. And he was super aggressive doing it. And it proved to be successful. Last year it did, even more than this year. But uh, Fabio too, he was such a motherfucker and it hurts me to see him on uh, on a bike which has uh, barely more horsepower than uh, r1 a street legal r1 i mean if you uh, go over the top and everybody uh, over the top in mugello and everybody is flying by i mean something has uh, has to change with yamaha like it has uh, to change for the last whatever five to ten years when when it's the last time Yamaha was really competitive was like 2015 and then 2021 where uh, but Fabio last year he had some issues uh, where what what he's having right now too so I don't know if Yamaha was dominant last year or Fabio was I would uh, tend to say Fabio was but uh, yeah back to 2022 in Mugello he was so so good and the Yamaha held him back because if he had some uh, top speed, he would have won that race. Period. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Um, I mean, Fabio Quartararo right now is the miracle man of Yamaha. The fact that he's even remotely competitive, let alone getting second on a track like Mugello with that kind of straight is miraculous. There is no other word to describe it. It is just miraculous. 
Uh, I mean, Fabio Quartararo is doing things that are superhuman now. I mean, he's doing things that Valentino Rossi did when he first went to Yamaha and straining everything he can out of that bike. Even in 2015, when Yamaha was last remotely competitive, he's doing what, again, even though I'm not his biggest fan, he's doing what Jorge Lorenzo did in making that bike competitive against the best bikes on the grid. And Fabio deserves an infinite amount of credit for that because the bike still turns the best on the grid. I, I think that's still a fair argument. But every time he gets on a straight, they're just walking away from him. You know, every time Fabio gets on a straight, unless he's got a five-second gap, the Ducatis swallow him. The Suzuki swallows him. The Aprilia swallows him. Even the KTM probably swallows him as well. But they so, aren't fast enough to get there in the first place. Exactly. If they were actually fast enough in the first place to get there, they would swallow him as well. So what Fabio is doing is genuinely the stuff of legend at this point. It really is. To come away with 20 points from Magello will be just as good as a win for Fabio. Yeah. And he deserves so much credit for that. Yeah, you're, you're right. I don't necessarily agree with the Jorge Lorenzo comparison uh, because Jorge was only competitive when the bike was competitive. He never made a bike competitive like Marc Marquez did, like Valentino Rossi did. He never made those bikes competitive. When he had a good bike, like the Yamaha, uh, where whenever he was there, or the Ducati in uh, 2018. Was it? 2018. Yeah, yeah. When the bike works for him he's unbeatable but he doesn't make the bike work if you know what i mean and fabio is making the bike work because look where frankie's at i mean it's literally his teammate and the yamaha had some issues with the turning uh, apparently in Mugello, which uh, was kind of surprise uh, to yamaha and to fabio but they kind of fixed it for fabio but i don't know what's the issue with uh, with frankie because we tend to forget that Frankie, first of all, in Moto2, he was an absolute motherfucker. Nobody could touch him. And then uh, when he moved to uh, MotoGP, I mean, he had the uh, Honda, which wasn't the best bike. But as soon as he went to the Yamaha, he was good. And in 2020, he uh, was one engine blow up away from winning uh, from winning the world championship. He was People forget that. Very, very good. I don't know what uh, his physical condition is like. I don't know which uh, other um, injuries or which other problems uh, he has to uh, deal with. I would love to uh, know, but unfortunately, uh, I don't. And uh, yeah, let's not act like Andrea Dovizioso forgot how to ride a motorcycle. No? I mean, Darren Binder, he's a rookie. Okay. But uh, Fabio is making the bike work. And that's a huge red flag for Yamaha. Because if Fabio leaves and they have no customer team potentially for next season, what I don't believe, but it could be a possibility, then uh, what do you do? Exactly. I mean, Yamaha have got a myriad of problems right now. I mean, it's, it's hard to even know where to start. Um, the only thing positive about Yamaha right now is Fabio Quartararo. That's it. I mean, aside from the bike, he is literally carrying everybody else on the back of his leathers right now. It's unbelievable. And um, I'm glad you mentioned Frankie Morbidelli because I'm a big Frankie Morbidelli fan. I always have been, even going back to his Moto2 days, I always thought Frankie was a world champion caliber rider. 
I don't know what his issue is. Um, I mean, he's come back from a pretty horrific leg break last season. Obviously, that took a long time to recover from. But it's just, I don't know what's going on, Leo. I really do not know. Um, It's got to be psychological or his leg isn't healing properly. Maybe it's both. I don't know. But whenever you're Frankie Morbidelli, a a MotoGP World Championship runner-up, and Darren Bender is finishing ahead of you, that would that would concern me. It really would. You know, he's in the wilderness right now. He's 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 releg- he's in the relegation zone of the MotoGP table, which is no good for anybody. And Andrea Davizioso, a multiple time runner up in the world championship, he's nowhere. I mean, I think even Michele Piero might have finished ahead of Andrea Davizioso. That's a problem. That's a really, really big problem. And I don't know if the Massimo Marigalis or the Lynn Jarvises are simply brushing this to one side and they don't think there's a problem, but there's a big bloody problem. Patronus were uber competitive in 2021, or I think it was 2020, actually. They were the best independent team on the paddock. And now you've gone to RNF and it's two years later and three of those four Yamahas aren't working. There's a massive, massive issue at Yamaha. And like you said, Leo, if Fabio goes, the entire thing caves in because they yeah. don't have anybody else. Yeah. I mean, Toprak Razgalioglu is not going to want to go on that bike. And like you mentioned the point about Yamaha potentially having no customer team next season. Who's going to want that bike? What team is going to think we're going to enter MotoGP what bike are we going to pick? Oh, wait, let's pick that piece of shit M1 that's nowhere near competitive. The question isn't even, the problem isn't even, are Yamaha going to have a customer team? Who's going to want to be a customer of Yamaha? Because RNF have been here this season. They've done nothing. Patronus pulled out because of financial issues and you know arguments with Yamaha over riders going to the team, all that kind of stuff. The question is, who's even going to want to pick up those spare bikes next season? I don't know if anybody will. I mean, if you uh, had to pick between a Yamaha team or no MotoGP team, you would take the Yamaha because Yamaha is also a great manufacturer with lots of success in the past and they should be able to turn the thing around and... I don't know what uh, what their problem is because uh, the problem has been there for the last what's like seven years, pretty much. Seven after, eight years. Yeah, pretty much after the 2015 season, Yamaha uh, started to fade. Uh, funnily enough, I believe it was when Maverick Vinales uh, went there because from 2017 onwards they're having big problems. Um, maybe uh, we don't give uh, Jorge Lorenzo enough uh, credit for developing the bike. Could be. I don't know. Maybe we, uh, we've we all been wrong uh, about Jorge. <laughs> Maverick the Albatross, of yeah. course. But uh, again, I would rather have a Yamaha uh, than no MotoGP team. And I believe that uh, Aprilia will have a say in uh, who's going to ride for them. And maybe they will take Andrea Dovizioso, but I don't know if they will take uh, Darren Binder. Because it's not their problem that uh, that Darren Bin is in MotoGP. Maybe Aprilia says, okay, we have Aleish, we have Maverick Vinales for a factory team. We want some young rookie there. Maybe Alex Rins. 
maybe an Alex Rins, maybe a Celestino Vietti, or maybe uh, Aaron Canet, maybe something along the line, you know? Um, Joe Roberts? Could remember a couple of seasons yeah, 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 yeah. ago? I remember, but I'm not a big fan of Joe Roberts moving up because, yeah, he had a good race. That's fair, that's fair. But uh, there are other people's, uh, people who uh, deserve it more because they have been more successful. They've proven to be faster. And I mean, that's the beauty about Moto2. We see pretty much everybody on equal machinery. And now you move them up to MotoGP and all of a sudden everybody is, uh, everything is turned upside down. Um, the only time last season Fabio Di Gian Antonio was able to beat Remy and Raul and uh, Marco Bezzecchi was in Reyes when he won that race. Um, in every other race, he wasn't there. And Bezzecchi was competitive. Bezzecchi is a very good, but he wasn't nowhere near Remy and Roll. And it hurts me that uh, both of uh, those riders are uh, uh, having to ride such a shitbox in the KTM. Yeah, I mean... I mean, there's, there's no other way of putting it. The KTM is a shitbox, pretty much. That's exactly what it is. I mean, Brad Bender and Miguel were much better today. Um, it must be said this time. I mean, this is really the first time all season. I mean, Oliver won in um, Indonesia. I understand that. But that was, yeah. you know, a, that was an X-factor race. This is really the first time in normal conditions with everybody on an even surface that he's shown even a remote sign of life. So credit to him. But I mean, Remy and Raul, I do feel really sorry for, for different reasons, I suppose. Uh, Remy, I feel sorry for, because obviously he, he, I do think he is still injured and he's still feeling the effects of that. You know, I think he had a broken rib and he had something else, if I'm not wrong. I mean, you probably know more than I do. Yeah, broken yeah. hand as well. And I mean, then Raul, Raul, even though he is the moral champion and even though he's this and he's that, you know, Raul never, I don't think Raul wanted to move up on that KTM. No. You know, he he would have rather stayed in Moto2, won the title and waited it out till next year. So if I'm Raul Fernandez and I'm Remy Gardner, I'm equally pissed off for very different reasons. Remy, I'm just sorry for because he is riding the shit box of an rc16 that just isn't anywhere near competitive and if i'm raul i'm pissed off because i didn't even want to be there in the first place so tech three i've got a real issue for this season and for next season because they've got two of the best young riders moto 2 has ever produced and i do mean ever produced and they've just given them substandard machinery i don't understand it but one way or the other, they've got to improve it next season. They just have to. Yeah, and uh, it's especially uh, hard if you consider all the talks that KTM might clean the house, <laughs> except from Brad Binder. And when you have Rolf Fernandez, who was two years ago in Moto3, who had the best rookie season I can remember in Moto2, and now is on this piece of shit, then you try to judge him, okay, by his results. No, it's not his fault. It's the bike's fault. And the same with Remy. Remy has unbelievable experience in Moto2. Uh, Moto he moves up and is nowhere near to be competitive. He isn't worse than Marco Bezzecchi. He should be at least on par. 
maybe yeah. something with Fabio uh, in Moto2 where he wasn't really good in Moto2 and then was really good in uh, MotoGP. Those kind of things happen. But usually you get a good feeling on who's better and who's worse, you know? And yeah. uh, the difference between Marco Bezzecchi and Remy Gardner is not the rider, it's the bike. And if KTM uh, throws both of them out of, uh, out of the team, it's uh, it's a huge disgrace to the sport because it's not the rider's fault that they are in this position. It's the manufacturer's fault. And period, if you don't give a rookie like two or three years to develop, that's already a bad sign. Mm, yeah, I agree with you. Um, I agree with you massively. The problem is, is that a lot of these teams now are looking at how intense the championships are getting. And we've got these rookies who are doing things they should not be able to do. They're otherworldly talented. I mean, you know, some of these guys, even in the current classic Iron Canada and people like that, they're so freaking talented. It's not even right. And the thing is, you phrased it perfectly, Leo. Whenever you give these young guys pieces of shit bikes, and expect them to do what they did in Moto2. It's a complete disparity. It's totally unfair. And look, again, Raul Fernandez, I'm not his biggest fan after what he said after the Moto2 season, but you cannot judge him on that bike. Absolutely not. The guy had the best rookie season any Moto2 rider has ever had. I'm pretty sure points-wise, he even went past Mark Marquez's Moto2 year in 2012. I so, believe too because marcus was injured uh, this year he had the first uh, occurrence of the double vision and missed a couple of seasons and that's, right. that's why uh, stefan bradel won the championship so i'm very confident that uh, rolf fernandez had more points but i don't know i had to check but yeah well i'm pretty i'm pretty confident that he was uh, one way or the other But the point is, I mean, if Tech 3 decide to throw them out because they haven't given them a good enough bike, then, like you said, it is truly a disgrace to the sport because it's a criminal waste of talent. Yeah. And quite, quite frankly as well, you know, Tech 3 have got the same issue that a satellite Yamaha team would have. Who is going to want to ride that bike? Because prospective riders, whether you're Moto2, Moto3, World Superbike, wherever you come from, if Tech3 ring you and say, we want you to ride an RC16 satellite bike next season, you're going to look at Remy Gardner, Moto2 World Champion, Raul Fernandez, Moto2 runner-up World Champion, best rookie season Moto2's ever had. They both went up and they've done, they haven't been able to do anything with that bike. And you're going to think to yourself, why would I want to throw away the start to my career in this bike? You're just not going to do it. Yeah. So unless Tech 3 start investing and improving in Remy and Raul, they could be in a much bigger difficult position than they even they think. Yeah, I mean, it's not uh, that Tech 3 uh, is to blame there. It's KTM because, first of all, the riders have the contract with KTM. They don't have it with uh, Tech 3. And yeah. Tech 3 only get the bike they get. You know, you can't change it. It's not like uh, back in the 80s where you get a bike and you can tune it. You can't tune a MotoGP bike. So I wouldn't necessarily blame Tech 3 because they have pretty much uh, nothing to say. A in the no, no, um, I actually misspoke. I meant KTM, not okay. Tech 3. Hervé Poncheral does a brilliant job uh, yeah. with that team. You're right, it is KTM. Yeah, but it's the same issue with, uh, with Yamaha. I mean, if you have to decide between a Yamaha satellite team and no satellite team, you take the Yamaha satellite team. Like Petrucci did uh, 
in 2020 when he had to uh, move from uh, from Ducati, he chose KTM because you rather go to KTM than to uh, to World Superbike, for example, like. Jack Miller, if Jack Miller had to decide KTM or nothing, you would take the KTM. But that's a bad sign because KTM has so many young riders in the pipeline. And if they can't manage to um, to bring the bike uh, at least to a competitive level, if I'm Pedro, I'm not going there. Not a chance. I mean... Brad Binder and Miguel Oliveira, they have three respectively four years of experience on the bike. You expect them to be better than a rookie. Yeah. yeah. And you expect them to be on, uh, on, on a kind of state of mind where you understand the bike and where you can improve the bike. And so, but you can't expect that from a rookie. You can expect from a rookie to stay on the bike and learn and then understand the bike and then Maybe we can talk about improving uh, at the end of the season or uh, at the beginning of next season. But um, if you are in in this position where KTM is right now, you're pretty much fucked. And to um, to blame the riders for it is is it's mind-boggling to me. If you want to blame Miguel Oliveira, okay, do it. He had first of all the chance to develop the bike. He had the chance to understand the bike, and he was successful on the bike. But uh, if you say, okay, it doesn't work, okay, fine. But at least give those rookies a chance. Couldn't agree anymore. I, I just couldn't. Yeah, and uh, I, I hope that uh, they won't bring a Gas Gas team to MotoGP because there's still uh, an open spot there because uh, Yamaha should get a satellite team if they want one. But if not, maybe there's another uh, manufacturer who would like uh, I've heard about Honda bringing six back to the grid. Who knows? But uh, yeah, back to back to MotoGP. Even then, actually, just a very quick segue before yeah. we head back to MotoGP. Any manufacturer, hypothetically, if you could bring any manufacturer back to the MotoGP paddock, who would it be? I would bring a BMW. Not interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Huh? I mean, I wouldn't bring them back because uh, as far as I'm concerned, they never raced there. Maybe way be, uh, before my time, but uh, not um, not uh, now. But I would love to uh, have BMW as a manufacturer because it's a huge company. They know how to do stuff. I mean, right now at the Nürburgring, they had the BMW M4 and the thing is a motherfucker. I mean, it broke, oh, yeah. but the thing is good. It wins pretty much... Uh, or competes for the win pretty much uh, at every um, at every race at the Nürburgring because they have like the uh, NLS, which is the uh, endurance series there where they race for us. And the BMW is good. I mean, they know how to build uh, bikes. They know how to build cars. And it shouldn't be a problem for them to build a MotoGP bike if they want to. Um, but yeah, BMW would be my choice. I don't necessarily like the Kawasaki idea, but it's better than nobody. Oh, Kawasaki would be amazing. Just put two H2Rs on the grid and let them race the MotoGP bikes. Yeah, I mean, uh, you could just buy the Suzuki project and uh, paint the thing green, um, sign Fabio, and then win the world championship. Kawasaki. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just half yeah. green, half silver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, back to MotoGP. Um 
when riders like Darren, uh, like Brad Binder, I'm sorry, and uh, Miguel Oliveira are competitive, you have a problem because if you like them or not, these motherfuckers can ride, and they've proven that they have proven that they can ride. You know? Yeah, totally. I mean, the problem that we have with MotoGP now is a problem that I don't think MotoGP has ever faced. And the problem we have is, is that there's almost too much good talent available. And what that means is guys who normally finish seventh or eighth, you know, your typical Brad Bender, for example, who is a hell of a motherfucking MotoGP rider, as you said. You know, if this had been six, seven years ago, he would have been signed to KTM for life for finishing seventh or eighth every race because it's mightily hard to do in MotoGP. The problem that we have is, is that in 2022, the world of Grand Prix motorcycle racing is so intense that for every rider currently in the MotoGP paddock, there's pretty much four riders in Moto2 or Moto3 who you could replace them with on one bad result. And the problem that that produces is that there's an unbelievable amount of pressure on each rider and each team in the paddock to go out and basically win every single race. You know, this is not the paddock of Randy Depunier's with respect or Bradley Smith's anymore, where being towards the bottom half of the table is good enough. There's now so many good young riders coming up in that sort of Mark Marquez shoulder to the ground mold. You know, you have so many mini Mark Marquez's coming up that every team is under monstrous pressure for the riders to perform. And one bad season means you're right. I mean, look at Danilo Petrucci last year. Yeah. Danilo Petrucci is a fabulous motorcycle rider. He had one tough season with Tech 3 and he had to go to Moto America. That's how competitive this is. So I don't know. I mean, Miguel Oliveira has had a lot of chances, don't get me wrong. And when he's great, he's untouchable. But guys like Brad Bender are always going to be stable, solid riders. And even now, that's not good enough anymore. It tells you the state of the world of MotoGP more than anything. Yeah, I mean, look at the Moto2 Championship. Let's take out Pedro because I would like to uh, like him to stay uh, one more year in Moto2. But uh, Iogura should move up. Aaron Canet should move up. Celestino Vietti should move up. Um, Chandra, you could argue that he should move up. Did I miss someone? I mean, I'm not like the biggest Joe Roberts uh, moving up to MotoGP fan. No, I would leave him in Moto2 for yeah. one more year as well. I agree with that. Sam Lowe's too, Abolino too. I don't think that uh, Abolino is ready yet. And I don't think Sam Lowe's will ever be ready. Um, but yeah, and then you have Toprak. You could argue uh, he should go to a MotoGP. Because yeah, I had, an, uh, I had a tweet uh, last year where I pretty much said, Jonathan Ray and Mark Marquez won the exact same number of uh, premier class championships. Mark Marquez won uh, six MotoGP championships and uh, Jonathan Ray six uh, WSBK championships. But nobody gives a flying fuck about Jonathan Ray. Look at his Instagram. He doesn't even have a million followers. And for a six-time world champion, not, not the best, you know? And uh, Mark Marquez, what uh, probably like 9 million or something like that. If not 10 or 11. Yeah, people are generally more interested in MotoGP than in WSPK, as they should be, because those are the best riders, those are the best bikes, and it's the pinnacle of the sport. And 
because of that, you need to be there if you want to be recognized as an all-time great. Because I would argue that even though Jorge Lorenzo has fewer world championships than, um, than Jonathan Ray, he's the better rider or the greater yeah. rider, the greater legend. Or even Casey Stoner. Casey Stoner wasn't particularly successful if you go by the numbers, but if you watch his races and he raced during a time where MotoGP had like four competitive bikes on the grid, but that's a different story. But even though Casey Stoner isn't as successful in terms of numbers as Jonathan Ray, which is a fact, you still consider him the bigger le legend. And that's why oh, yeah. I believe if you want to be recognized at, uh, as that, you need to go to MotoGP and you need to win there. And if I'm top Rob, I'm heading uh, over to MotoGP. Yamaha uh, is like a little bit tough to be right now at the moment, but maybe they will figure it out for next season, maybe for like 2024, I don't know. Um, but yeah, you need to be in MotoGP. So how many riders do we have? We have, uh, I forgot to count. We have Ogura. We, we have, have five. Yeah, five riders. Who do you take out from MotoGP? Are there five riders who shouldn't be in MotoGP right now? I don't. Well, you can take out two because Suzuki are going technically. So that means you could put two somewhere else, maybe another satellite team from someone else. But then that leaves you with three or four riders you got to take out who are already there. I mean, do you take out more Bedelli at Yamaha? I don't know. I would take out Darren Bender and Davi and maybe put two people there. Um, I would take out... Uh, God, this is harder than I thought it would be. Um, Alex Marcus? You, you, oh, yeah. Mar yeah, I'd put in Chantra and Agora for Marquez and Nakagami. Absolutely. So, uh, I think it's solvable, but it's a very, very thankless task. Yeah. But I, I love your point. I love your point that you made about World Superbike because I agree. And look, Jonathan Ray is from about 40 minutes down from my house. You know, he is from here. And he is, you know, he's a fabulously talented motorcycle rider. No one's ever going to say different. No. But the problem is no one cares on the level that they care about MotoGP because MotoGP, it doesn't get higher than MotoGP. That's why Casey Stoner, in my opinion, is a bit... Casey Stoner is one of the greatest riders ever in terms of pure talent. Even though he might not have the numbers of other riders, he has the ability that supersedes many. And the problem that I have with Jonathan Ray, actually, whilst we're on this topic, is that in 2019 or 20, a couple of years ago, it turned out that Jonathan Ray was offered a Patronus Yamaha ride, and he turned it down. Now, that tells me that there's no ambition to prove that you are truly the best. And I'm not, I mean, Jonathan Ray's, what, 30, he's around the same age as David Steele, so he's about 34, 35 now. I'm not expecting a 35-year-old man to go into MotoGP for the first time since 2012 when he wildcarded for Honda to go and win a world title. I'm not expecting that, but I am expecting at least the willingness to try and go and do that. And the thing is with Toprak, is a top rack is a brilliant rider and he can do all the circus stunts that he wants in his R1. But like you said, who's going to give a fuck if he doesn't try and make it a MotoGP? Nobody is. And the, so the social media numbers are a different conversation, but in terms of the championships alone, there is no comparison. MotoGP is number one. It always will be. World Superbike, brilliant championship. I'm certainly not arguing that. 
but it's not MotoGP. At MotoGP, you have to build your bike. You've got to make your bike your bike, and you've got to beat the best competition that the world has to offer. That's why Valentino is the greatest of all time. That's why Jorge Lorenzo is one of the greatest of all time, arguably. Casey Stoner, you know, guys like that. There is no competition, or there is no comparison. There just isn't. Like you said, and this is the last point I'll make before we move on, Jonathan Ray and Mark Marquez, I think you said of the same number of titles. Yet if you ask who the better rider is, every single person will say Mark Marquez. It's not even close. Yeah, of course. I mean, I don't fault Jonathan Ray for not going to MotoGP. It's completely fine for me. Because if you want to stay at uh, Kawasaki and win multiple championships, uh, go do it. I don't have a problem with it and I'm not diminishing his skills as a rider. But if you want to be considered an all-time great and if he makes that decision, okay, cool, stay there, no problem. But if you want to go to MotoGP and um, and prove you are the best, then you, you need to be, first of all, you need to be younger because Jonathan Ray would have looked foolish, I assume, that when he, uh, if he went to MotoGP, he would probably be like, in the midfield, I would assume, on the Yamaha in 2019, 2020 midfield, Yamaha, I would say. And um, yeah, he would look like, okay, everybody can win in MotoGP, who can, uh, who, everybody can win in WSBK, who can finish in a top five in MotoGP. I believe it, it would look uh, foolish, but if you're a top rock, he's first of all much younger. He has a very, very entertaining riding style, which is good for the big league, you know? Um, go there and prove yourself. What's the point of uh, winning eight uh, WSBK um, championships if everybody says Fabio is the greater rider because he won one MotoGP championship? I would put Top Rack on a Honda. I would love to see that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, everything else you said, I couldn't agree more with. You know, being the greatest world superbike rider of all time is an incredible achievement. You know, whether that ends up being Top Rock or if it's still Jonathan Ray, it's an incredible achievement, but you're always going to be looked at as second best. That's just a fact, whether you love it or whether you hate it. Jonathan Ray will always be viewed as being second best to Mark Marquez. You know, whoever the world superbike championship champions were in the mid to late 2000s, will always be inferior to Valentino Rossi. Carl Fogarty, unbelievable rider back in the day, will never be near like a Wayne Rainey or a Schwanz or a Doohan. There just will never be any comparison. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. Go over and test yourself and prove that you belong amongst the greats. Yeah, yeah, but uh, back to the uh, original topic. We have like... Back to the five riders uh, who you take out. I mean, Alex Marcus. You could take out because I'm not convinced. Uh, Andrea Dovizioso would be a tough one, but what have you done for me lately? But maybe it's the Yamaha. You, you don't know because Andrea Dovizioso has proven that he is still a very good rider. And let's assume Aprilia says, okay, keep your riders. And Darren Binder and um, Andrea Dovizioso will go to, the, uh, to uh, Aprilia. Who says Andrea Dovizioso isn't a top uh, 10, top 5 finisher? Could be. So that's already a very, very tough task. And then Takaki Nakagami, okay, he isn't impressive, but he is much better than Alex Marquez. Is still... But is that saying much? That's the problem. 
yeah, but it's still a tough decision to say, okay, he is uh he isn't good enough for MotoGP because he is kind of good. Where did he finish? Like seventh or something? He yep. I eighth? think. Yeah, he finished ahead of Mark Marquez. So I don't know that's what Mark Marquez with a busted wing as well. Yeah, that's the big topic, you know. Mark and again, I'm, I'm not the biggest Mark Martez fan, but you know, saying that you're ahead of Mark Martez now is like saying I'm a better footballer than Kevin De Bruyne with a broken leg. You would expect me to be better. I have two legs. He only has one. You know, the, this is this is the problem that we have is that all these riders are amazing. You know, to be in MotoGP alone, you have to be the best of the best. But you have to look at where you are and you have to look at where you want to be. And you have to look at whether those goals currently align. And for LCR, they just don't. That's just the reality. Alex Martez, let's be totally honest here. Yes, he's a Moto2 world champion. We know he's at LCR because he's Mark Martez's brother. That's just the truth. Nakagami, how many years has he been given to develop that bike with LCR? You know, it's probably near 10 years now. And he's still unspectacular. You know, it's time to give someone else a chance. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, I would love Honda to sign Takaki Nakagami as a test rider because Stefan Bradl uh, isn't able to do anything. I mean, <laughs> if you develop such a bad bike, eventually you fire the test rider. I mean, the same with normal riders. If you aren't producing good results, you will get fired eventually. So, um, yeah, but um, let's talk about Mark Marcus because everything other is just pure speculation. Let's talk about Mark Marcus, because he had a, a qualifying one, which was very impressive. Uh, it seemed like the rain is uh, was coming at the exact right moment for him. But uh, then he high-sided in, uh, in the Q2, in the sighting lap, I believe, or maybe the first flying lap. I can't remember. I watched it in uh, in bed uh, at the camping van. Um, so yeah, he high sided and basically uh, lands on his left or right arm. Which one was the injured one? I believe it was his. I think it was the right arm. I yeah. think it was his head on yeah. his right arm. Yeah, yeah, and he landed on the injured uh, arm. Is pretty much the point I'm making. And it's uh, those slow high siders are usually very very painful and. If you have the injury history that Mark Marcus has, you should be more careful. I mean, it's not like, okay, MotoGP riders have to take risks. Yes, they have. Everybody else has to take risks too. But you have to have in mind that you are one bad crash away from retirement. And Marco Bezzecchi isn't one bad crash away from retirement. I mean, okay, everybody kind of is, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. Uh, but... Marco Bezzecchi, for example, can take much more risk than Mark Marcus because he has the benefit of not knowing what such an injury means. Mark Marcus knows. And Mark Marcus knows that if he injures himself once again, it could be over or it certainly doesn't get better from his uh, current position. You know, and to crash there in tricky conditions where everybody else uh, got around safely. It, it's, it's the same old story. Do you have to push right there so much? Or should you be a little more careful, take uh, 
a couple of laps to get accustomed to the wet track and then uh, when it's dry at the end, go for it? I mean, I don't know what more I can say about Mark Marquez at this point. I really, really don't. Um, I mean, where to even start? I mean, like you said, the siding lap of Q2, you know, you're coming out of the pits, you're getting used to the conditions on the track for Q2. And I was watching Q2 live, obviously, um, and all the riders went out as they do. And I saw Mark Marquez overtaking some of them on the siding lap. And I thought, shit, he's going to do it again. And again, look, I'm not the biggest Mark Marquez fan in the world. I think we've established that pretty clearly over the first episodes. But I saw him overtaking everybody in the siding lap, and I thought, he's going to fuck this up, and he's going to do something stupid. And lo and behold, what does he do? He high sides. And not only does he high side, it's a low speed high side, which as Leo so eloquently described, is arguably worse than a fast high side because you've got that trajectory of going up. You're getting slingshotted off the bike. At least if it's a fast high side, the trajectory is pretty low. You know, you don't go up in the air and get dumped on your head. And of course, with Mark Marquez, he goes out, he doesn't take anybody's advice. He goes out, too trigger happy and he gets thrown over his bike once again not only that he lands on his head where he can't see properly and he lands on his arm which is completely busted from two years ago i mean when when is he going to he's, he's just not going to learn is he he is not going to learn at this point um you know I don't even know what more to say. I really don't know what more I can add. I don't think I have the vocabulary for it. But what I am going to say about Mark Marquez is this. And again, unfortunately, I have to be serious about it. You know, we find out that he's basically sitting out the rest of the season. He's going to America. I think tomorrow he's going to the United States to get arm surgery the fourth major surgery that he's had on his right arm since that crash in Hareth two years ago. If this surgery doesn't work, this will be the end of Mark Marquez because Honda are, well, Honda are retarded enough. They probably will let him do it, but he cannot ride a MotoGP bike with one good arm. You just can't. There is nothing you can say. There is nothing you can do. Unless you've two good working arms, two good working eyes, and a healthy body, you can't ride you can't ride a push bike, let alone a 300 kilometer an hour MotoGP bike. Are you completely insane? So Mark Marquez better pray to the to Virgin Mary of Guadalupe herself that this surgery works. Because if it doesn't, this is the end of Mark Marquez. And I'm being deadly serious when I say it. You know, and then Honda, I mean, I'll let you say your piece about it and then we'll go into the implications with Honda. But if this does not work, it's game over for Mark Marquez. That's just it. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's impressive enough that Mark Marquez with his current uh, physical condition is producing the results he does that speaks to his talent. And there's nothing to diminish that he's one of the greatest riders to ever live. And oh, there's no question. No question. It's sad that he apparently isn't able to take things, to take on things carefully. Because look at Portimao, where Raul Fernandez and Remy Gardner, they crashed on the slick tires under tricky conditions in the qualifying. Okay, they're rookies, but 
First of all, Mark Marquez has 10 years of experience. He knows that a slick tire on those conditions is maybe not the best, uh, um, the best tire, but you go for it because you have to take the risk because the rain tire works even worse, you know, but um, those aren't the best conditions for slick tires and you have a cold tire and you are pretty much broken down already. So you know all these uh, things and apparently he can't he can't learn that's that that's the sad thing about it because do i want mark marcus to win another championship no one day i will die much happier when i know valentino rossi has more championships than mark marcus but is that the reason why i um or other thing does that mean that I want to see him retire. No, because he's fun. It's fun to make fun of him. It's fun if he um, if he races because either you love him or hate him, but he brings out the emotions. He's good for the sport. He has a huge following. Everybody is excited to see Mark Marcus. One side want to see him lose. The other side want to uh, see him win. But this is the same with Conor McGregor in the UFC. I mean, uh, he is such a superstar that the company, MotoGP or the UFC, is better with their superstar, which is Mark Marcus, than without. And nobody, first of all, I don't wish uh, bad things on nobody. I don't want Mark Marcus to be injured and I don't want him to uh, leave uh, the sport and I don't want him to be hurt because I wouldn't want to experience it either. It's pretty simple, you know? But um, it's it's getting to a point where, I, where I'm thinking like, when do you get it? What does to happen more than uh, what already happened for you to learn? Nothing. That's the problem. That is the, I mean, that is the concern that I have here. I mean, let's let's think about other riders just as, if not better than Mar- Marquez, who've had major injuries. Valentino Rossi, biggest injury he ever had in his career was a completely shattered, broken leg. He came back, he never put himself in that position again. Jorge Lorenzo broke his back off of the high side and it retired him. Casey Stoner had a couple of injuries and he had medical issues outside of that. You know, Mark Marquez is going to, I mean, I'm wasting my breath. I know that because he's just never going to, but he has to learn. He has to learn or he's going to get retired or worse killed. That is going to happen. And I, you know, I couldn't agree much more with you on this, Leo, because we do think the same. You know, do I want Mark Marquez to have another world title that um, I think would surpass Valentino? No, I don't, because I love Valentino and I don't like Mark. But is our sport better for having Mark Marquez in it as a spectacle? Shit, yeah, it is. You know, for all the Batmans and the good guys and the Spider-Mans and the Supermans, we need villains. You know, we need good and bad. You know, we need people we can love, people we love to hate, people we hate to love. We need people like that in our sport and love him, hate him, despise him, adore him, whatever. Mark Marquez is good for MotoGP when he's not knocking other people out of races or severely injuring himself. He is good for the sport. And I'm led to believe he's a very nice guy with charity and with kids who are fans and all that kind of stuff. I am led to believe he's a very good guy, but he is going to cripple himself. I mean, he's already crippled, let's be honest, but he is going to kill himself 
with the next big crash. I really do believe that. And the thing is, you know, over the years, and I, I think I said this the last time Mark had a big crash, it might have been the Indonesian episode. You know, I've seen too much tragedy in MotoGP over the years already to want any more. I wouldn't want it anyway, but I certainly don't want it now. Guys like Dejiro Kato, rest in peace. Guys like Jason DePasquier, guys like Marco Simoncelli. Bet, shout out Super Siege, by the way, always and forever. You know, we have seen better guys, talented guys, experienced guys lose their lives with our sport. Sometimes through accidents they get involved with, sometimes through nothing of their own. And Mark Marquez will be the next on that list. I promise you that. I don't want to, but I will. Because there is only so much the human body can take. And quite frankly, how Mark Marquez can still stand up in the morning is miraculous on its own. But the damage he's doing to himself is beyond severe. It really, really is. I mean, he can't even see properly anymore. He is, His diplopia has come back again. His right arm is shattered. You know, he can't put any weight on it properly. He's having to use more body weight to compensate for the inability to use his arm. He can't see. He can't use his arm. What is it going to take? I mean, does he have to have his legs cut off by another bike? What does another bike have to hit him head on? I don't know what more it's going to take, Leo. I really, really don't. But either the guy has got a death wish and he can just take an inhuman amount of punishment or he's too stupid to listen. But either way, you know, I think he should call it quits now. I'm not saying that because I don't want him to see another title. I'm saying that to keep what's left of his health. But if he somehow does come back and if this arm does get a little bit better, the next big crash might be the end. It could be, and uh, I believe that Mark Marcos will try as long as he can, and he will take oh, yeah, he as, will. as long as he, he will. can, because I believe that he wants 10 titles. I believe it. He wants to be the first one to have 10 titles. He wants to surpass Valentino Rossi, and without the uh, discussion of the 2015 season, I do believe that's the reason why he helped Lorenzo, because he wanted to surpass Valentino Rossi, and it's easier to surpass Lorenzo, what he did, um, than to surpass Valentino Rossi. And um, yeah, I actually, I do believe that he wants to have 10 titles and he wants to retire as the greatest and he will, he's willing to risk everything for it. He is willing to sit in a wheelchair. He's willing to be blind. He's willing to never jerk off again with his uh, right arm. I don't know, but uh, he is... He is so determined to win that he's willing to take those risks. And, Jesus um, <laughs> and I mean, uh, look at Aragon uh, last year where he had the battle with Peko. Those races are far more entertaining than, for example, uh, Spielberg uh, 2020, where Paul Espargaro was battling with Jack Miller and Miguel Oliveira. Yeah, it's, it was a fun race, no doubt about it, but it's more fun when Mark Marcus is involved because he brings out the emotions. He's good for the sport and I don't want to see him hurt. I don't want to see him um, retired and I don't want to see him win the ninth title um, and equal Valentino, but it's it's not always black and white. There are many colors between them and I don't want him. Yes. I don't want him to win. I made that very clear, but I don't want him to, uh, to severely injure himself too. And it's like, 
Ken Velasquez. He's too tough for his own good, you know? And um, yeah, I don't know. But uh, I don't believe that he will, if he returns healthy, that he will be competitive again because MotoGP developed so much. And look at all the riders who are coming. I mean, if I'm Honda, let's have a little bit of silly season talk. We uh, pushed it as far uh, out as possible, but now uh, it's kind of the... Um, A good a good moment because if you're Honda, you know for a fact Mark Marquez will not race in 2022. He will race. You expect him to race in 2023. You know for a fact that nobody of your riders is any good. So what do you do? If I'm Honda, I'm signing Fabio, and because Mark Marquez is so uncertain, that I would keep him like Yamaha kept Valentino Rossi because he's a great marketing tool. He brings. Uh, lots of money in he brings lots of sponsors in it's good leave him there but develop the bike for fabio because fabio at the moment is the best rider in the world by far because i believe if peko who i consider the second best rider were sitting on the yamaha he wouldn't doing he wouldn't doing as good as uh, fabio did and um that's the difference because fabio is such a motherfucker that you need to have him on the bike if you uh, are Honda because nobody else is doing it. Jean Mir won't do it. Alex Rins won't do it. Um, I don't know who else. I can't see uh, any of the Ducati boys leaving. Maybe Jorge Martin because if he doesn't get the factory seat, which right now sounds ridiculous if he gets it. Um, yeah, he could be unhappy, but who should um, sign with Honda except from Fabio who will make them instant competitors? for the title yeah i mean it's it's a very difficult situation to navigate because i mean it, it like you said it depends on so many different things you know you have fabio quadraro who is the best motorcycle racer on planet earth right now i'm fully with that because like we said miracle man on the yamaha there is no question if i'm a honda and if i'm being realistic i would probably pick up Juan Mir and do try and do something with him. I agree he's unspectacular, but I think something can at least be done with him. I think if Yamaha have half a brain cell, which I got to be honest, I'm doubting, but I'm going to assume for the benefit of the doubt, they do have half a brain cell left. They will put everything into keeping Fabio Quartararo and keeping him from going anywhere else, except give him a good bike, but they'll do everything else to keep him. If I'm a Honda, I would probably either go for Mir or go for Toprak and basically pray that it works out. Because like you said, Honda are in a situation like Honda and Yamaha are pretty much the same for different reasons. They have one rider who's carrying the team and the rest who just aren't good enough one way or the other. But the problem for Honda is that you're a player is now unreliable you, he's never going to be the same again and this is the problem i have with honda fans as well don't get me wrong i respect honda fans they're loyal to their team and they're loyal to mark marquez but what you have to realize is that you are never going to see 2019 mark marquez again that guy is gone he is history he's never going to be 2019 mark again He's never going to be at that level where he can rescue the bike and go through hell and punishment to beat everybody else. 
that just isn't Mark Marquez anymore, which means you have to start looking to the future. And your future cannot be Stefan Bradl. Much as I respect Stefan Bradl, that can't be it because you're up shit creek if it's Stefan Bradl. So if it's not Stefan Bradl and if it's not anybody else, then what do you do? That's, of course, the question we're considering. I don't know. For some reason, I would... I would put my faith in Toprak because of his writing style. I think his writing style would would merge pretty well with the RC twenty one three. Build the project around him. Keep Mark Marquez as a mentor, maybe to teach him how to ride that bike and make it his own. Uh, but realistically, Honda are a mess right now, and they have problems no matter where they turn or who they sign. If it's Toprak, it's an experience in the Premier class. If it's Joanne, it's being unspectacular, you know, and not really whether he has the drive to push it to the next level. You know, there's problems no matter wherever you look. Yeah, and uh, I'm not a big Jean Mir fan because he is very good, but he isn't special. And he, when he has a good bike that works for him, he will finish in the top five, but that's... Yeah, it won him a world championship, but was an odd year. But he isn't going to win a championship by himself, you know, like Fabio no. did last year or Peko. I believe Peko could be a title contender if he banks out like five or six very good races. And um, yeah, but I don't see Jean Mir doing that. And I don't see Alex Rins doing it. And to be honest, I don't see Toprak doing it. And um, I would sign Fabio because. Who's better for world champion than the world champion? That's true. And the problem is, is he gonna is he gonna cross the infamous Honda Yamaha divide? I mean, I think I think if you agree to make him the center of the project and you give him a V4 that works, maybe I could see it. I just don't know if it'll happen, but I I like the theory. Yeah, and Fabio is kind of experienced because. He is very good on the inline four. He has a very smooth riding style, but it depends on if they can make the Honda work for him or not. Yeah. Fabio is aware of that. Fabio is aware that the Yamaha is the best bike for him, but unfortunately the Yamaha is a piece of shit. So he has to find another solution. But if I'm Honda, I'm doing everything I can to get Pedro as fast as possible because if Pedro moves up to KTM, He's fucked because KTM is a piece of shit. Um, I don't see Pedro going to Ducati. Maybe, but Ducati has already too many good riders. But Pedro is more than a good rider. But yeah. So let's talk about Pedro's race. How about that? He the did... Lord has risen, ladies and gentlemen. Pedro, yeah. Petlin Pedro is back. Uh just what a brilliant race, really. That's, yeah. that's all I can say. Pedro was just fantastic from beginning to end. Showed so much maturity for someone who's only 18. Um, I mean, he showed why he is the Moto3 world champion. You know, technically reigning Moto3 world champion. He and he showed why he's a championship quality rider. He really did show composure. Showed an exceptional ability to nail Magello bit by bit by bit by bit. Because Magello can catch you out really easily. I mean, we saw that with some of the crashes in the Premier class. You take one corner too smoothly or you take it too hard, 
you're out, you're done. And for someone like Pedro to be able to do that deserves an infinite amount of credit. Yeah, and I feel like something changed after Jerez because in Portimao he was good, in Jerez he was good, but he crashed in both races. And um, yeah, I was in uh, Jerez live and what I saw was Pedro picking the bike up and having like a 20 race uh, test day. Einfach just uh, be there, you know, and get experience with the bike, get experience um, uh, with the track and just improve, you know, because you have, if you want to race a motorcycle on the highest level, you have to race with a feeling. You can't race with your eyes. You can't race with your brain. You have to race with a feeling because you have to know what the bike does. You have to feel how it moves, how it uh, goes into the corner, how the bumps of the track are um, are affecting it. You are you are feeling that the eyes are only there to see if there's pretty much uh, an obstacle or something. If somebody's crashing when you want to overtake somebody, but basically you when you are fast you are feeling the thing and it's the same with cars that's the reason why formula one drivers don't see everything which is nearer than 50 meters because you can't react to it you just don't need to see it because you have to feel it and um yeah i believe something changed in this Jerez race because he went to le mans he was a motherfucker he crashed okay shit happens but he picked the bike up went to Mugello and did the same again without crashing. And he is right now, I believe, in a state of mind where he feels to be unbeatable again. He, yeah. The way he carries himself, he's so full of confidence. And he was like, yeah, it took, uh, took us quite a while. No, motherfucker, it's just uh, eight races. I mean, you're 18. No, usually it takes like riders one or two years uh, for this process, you know? But... Um, Pedro, he is such an amazing rider that he is able to uh, get to grips with the bike so fast. And Raul Fernandez said that uh, he tries to ride the bike uh, like a Moto3 bike. And maybe that's the input he needed. Maybe it took Raul Fernandez under the zone commentary to say, uh, you're doing it all wrong. Just for him to see, okay, maybe I'm doing it wrong. Maybe I need to change something. Pure speculation could be, could be that uh, he just found something or whatever. But uh, yeah, if if he continues like this, boy oh boy, do we have a season ahead of it? Absolutely, and you know, you got to remember, even before the moral champions input, you know, if you look at Le Mans, for example, I mean, this is an eighteen-year-old. Um, Raul Fernandez said this back in Jerez. Oh, all right, fair enough. Moral champion, well played. Um, but yeah, if you look at someone like um Pedro Acosta with just that raw talent, that raw talent and that raw grit, I mean, the kid is beyond special, he really is. You know, he's led races in his debut Moto 2 season for big stretches and unfortunately crashed out. But to put it all together and to win it somewhere like Mugello, that really is special. And it's a race he's going to remember for the rest of his life. His first ever Moto2 win, uh, arguably the jewel in the crown of the European calendar, which is Mugello. Um, just unbelievably impressive from Pedro. And if he can keep this going, then you're right, boy, we do have a season ahead indeed.
Yeah, and it was his first uh, sip of champagne. It was kind of funny because he just turned 18. And uh, the first uh, thing he did on the podium was uh, check the bubble. <laughs> My <laughs> and, guy. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, if you look at the race, the gap he pulled to Aaron Carnett in the last corner is so exceptional because Aaron Carnett was right behind him. And then he went into those long, uh, in this long um, left-hander, which is pretty fast and you have to nail it in order to be a good Uh, on the straight because otherwise you will get overtaken and uh, goodbye but he was able to do this corner so fast and the exit of the corner so fast that Aaron Canet had no chance to overtake him I mean he was ahead like a couple of bike lengths just from this corner and this shows me that he is able to ride this bike in a way nobody else does because Aaron Canet is a very, very bad motherfucker. He is very, very fast. And when you remember the uh, Moto3 season, when you remember what he did this uh, year, he is very good. Unfortunately, he hasn't won yet in Moto2, but it will come eventually. But um, to be like head and shoulders above somebody like Aaron Canet in a uh, in a single corner shows how good you are. And those are like pieces of Pedro's uh, riding style. And if he manages to put those pieces together, nobody can touch him. I have to agree. I Well, nothing tells me I can disagree. So I have to agree. I really do. And as far as pure talent in the Moto2 championship, Aaron Cannett for me is one of the standard bearers of that ability and if you can match or exceed Aaron Canada especially in that type of corner then you are worthy indeed and Pedro Acosta certainly is by the way commiserations to Aaron Canada because he had a brilliant race and it's really unfortunate that he crashed out when he did because he is a hell of a rider yeah and I want to see him first of all win and uh, second of all I want to see him in MotoGP next year and for example Pedro He never was good in qualifying in Moto3. He just had like a front row in Mugello and a pole position like in Valencia. But basically qualifying always uh, always was uh, not his uh, strong point. And he cut through the field, won or did damage limitation to win the championship. Now in uh, Moto2, this doesn't work anymore. So you have to be on top in qualifying. And he managed to do this. It's like those small improvements who make a big difference. And if he can put them together and he's putting them together, everybody else uh, should shit their pants. And something like uh, the Canet crash or the uh, Vietti thing, I believe he had an issue with his gearbox. Those are things that can't happen if you have someone like Pedro. Let's assume he goes to Catalonia and wins again or is like now a serious podium contender then if you aren't consistent, you have a problem towards the end of the season. And in Moto2 right now, nobody's consistent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the one thing really for me that characterizes Pedro Acosta better than being Petley and Pedro and not having to qualify well is his consistency. He's extremely stable and he always bangs out really good results in every race. So if we get a Pedro Acosta who can adapt the Moto3 wins to Moto2 wins by actually qualifying well, because like you said, with it's not like with Moto3, 
where you can basically slipstream from the back of the grid and end up winning. In Moto2, you have to qualify well because if you get stuck in the middle of the pack, you're going to stay in the middle of the pack. But if you can qualify out front, you stay out front and you win out front. If Pedro can start doing that and keep doing that, then you're right. The rest of the grid really should be shitting themselves. Because if you have the occasional gearbox failure, very unfortunate for Celestino Vietti, or you have a slip-out crash, or you have some other issue, Pedro is going to eat into that lead week after week after week, race after race after race, because it's what he does. He is captain consistency. That is what he is best at. So the rest of the grid better be praying that they don't have any more slip-ups, because if Pedro gets going, Pedro doesn't stop. Yeah, I mean, look at his Moto3 season. He had one fuck-up, which was in Aragon. Otherwise, he was so consistent. And he knows, or he knew last season, when to take a fifth place, when to take a third place, when to take a ninth place, you know? He was very consistent, and that won him the title as a rookie, which uh, this is so impressive. And now in Moto2, he wasn't as consistent. He crashed a lot, but... That's kind of his big thing right now. If he can sort it out, boy, oh boy. And yeah, yeah. he, we talked about the um, Peko crash uh, last, last race in uh, Le Mans, where we discussed if Bastianini uh, put too much pressure on him. And I wasn't convinced that uh, Bastianini um, put so much pressure uh, on, Pe on Peko that he cracked under pressure. But I am convinced that Pedro put too much pressure on Aaron Canet and that he cracked because we talked about the last corner. He was so good in this last corner that Aaron Canet tried to push as hard as he can. He was going into the corner uh, pretty tightly and then lost the front. And that's to me uh, a sign like, okay, I have to take this corner faster than I would want to in order to catch him because otherwise I don't have a chance to overtake him. And that's for me, the point um, that Pedro uh, broke Aaron Hanet because it was the exact same corner where he was superior to him and he tried everything and couldn't do it. Pedro could. And uh, if he can sort out his crashing, we have a, a hell of a season in front of us. No doubt, no doubt. And that last corner in Mugello is so brilliant for so many different reasons. Like you basically said, um, that last corner, you have to flow through really quickly and then fire out of like a slingshot. That's why people like Fabio Quartararo and Yamahas love that corner because you get to flow in really easily and then just shoot straight out of it. And it's a really good point that you made about the pressure he put in Aaron Canet. Even whenever I saw Aaron taking that corner, I thought, he's taking it a bit too tight. Pedro's just flowing through it as you're meant to. But Aaron, the pressure almost made him too conservative and he was too desperate to cling on to the corner too tightly. So when he tried to correct with the front end, bang, front end goes and you're out of the race. So this is what Pedro is also really good at. He's really good at applying very subtle psychological pressures as well. If you don't take the turn as perfectly as he does, you're right. If you don't take a corner the right way, you're right. If you're not clean enough on the exit of a corner onto a straight, you're right. And Pedro really could be that guy. He really could be the one that just puts the pressure on everybody else and breaks them. Yeah. And uh, I don't believe Fabio loves this corner because uh, of what follows. 
Oh, well, that is out of his control, yeah. But pretty much everything up to the bit where he gets walked past Fabio, he's in dreamland there. Yeah. No, but <laughs> um, the Moto2 championship will get interesting because Vietti doesn't uh, have the superiority uh, of the first few races. Aaron Canet is uh, fast but inconsistent. And Ayogura is good, but manages to qualify bad enough to not be able to contend for the victory but he is consistent and uh, now when if we can get Pedro in the mix and uh, let's let's hope he wins a few races and closes into the leaders then uh, it could be interesting and I'm very excited to see what's ahead so uh, I would like to cover Moto3 a little bit and then end it yeah, absolutely. Let's get into it. The Moto3, as always, absolute carnage. Nobody uh, knows what the fuck is going on. And all of a sudden, it's lap, uh, I believe it was like 10 laps to go or lap 10. I don't remember. And everybody crashes. I mean, Dennis Foggia, shit can't happen. Now you're down like 40 points. And um, yeah, I, nece I don't necessarily agree with the penalty uh, for... Isan Guevara? No, no, no. I mean, the uh, Dennis Entry in incident. It was Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Because for me, it's a racing incident. No need to push... Uh, no need to penalize him with a long lap. And it, it's not like he did it intentionally. And there are far worse uh, things. But, um, yeah. Also, the Arbolino and uh, Sam Lowe's incident... I guess we're back to Moto2. Um, I don't agree that there's a penalty because if you watch the replay, Arbolino, he had a big wobble uh, at the entry of the corner and was basically trying as hard as he can to not crash and then touches Sam Lowe's because unfortunately he isn't there. That to me is not worth a penalty. That's a racing incident because he didn't want to be there in this moment. He had to be there in order to keep his bike upright and yeah, I, I think it's stupid. And uh, what you mentioned, the Izan Guevara um, track limits rule is still stupid. I mean, the dude can't catch a break because now he wins and then he gets demoted again. And yeah, but good for him. I mean, he won the race. He is very, very good in every race. Garcia is too. He's a motherfucker. And those Gascas boys, they are very, very good. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, Gascas are just ahead of everybody else by a mile. It's it, it is pretty unbelievable when you look at it. It has to be said. Um, I do agree with what you said about the Dennis Ancho incident. Uh, that was that was just a racing incident for me. They really didn't need to step in and pen penalize him any more than they did. For me, just leave that one alone and let them get on with it. Um. Briefly going back up to Moto 2, the Arbolino Lowe's incident. Um, for me, it was a racing incident as well, but I can the wobble gives the penalty argument slightly more credence without giving it its full credit. The problem with Arbolino is that he, he does go offline and into Lowe's. We all saw what happens, but like you said, it's because of a wobble. It's not like he thought, fuck you, Lowe's, and he went offline to ram him off the track, because that's not what Tony Arbolino does. 
The problem is, is that he wobbles and Sam Lowe's is so wide. He's sort of wide and he's arching in on the turn on Arbelino. So when Arbelino comes up, he doesn't have anywhere to correct out. Uh, that I mean, that is, for me, the textbook definition of a racing incident. Both guys could have done a little bit more to avoid it. Neither of them had much space to go. So for me, racing incident and nothing more than that. But yeah, Moto3 is just carnage. It really is. What they should do is whenever they have the logo for Mo- the Moto3 title, just spray paint chaos underneath it because that's all it is. I mean, like you said, we had that pileup uh, with Foggia. We have a photo finish with Garcia and Guevara, and the only way they can decide it is a bullshit demotion um, for exceeding track limits. I mean, it's madness. It's a mental championship. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I can understand that you want to draw a line where you say, "Okay, here is enough," because you can't go off track. Absolutely agree, but I don't agree with the last lap uh, rule because. He didn't gain any advantage there. There is there has, to be, there has to be a solution where you can penalize someone. Let's say give him a three-place grid penalty or a five-place grid penalty on the next race. But you you are manipulating the championship because now Isa Guevara has five points less and uh, Cedric Garcia has five points more. And what if these five points or these 10 points in this case um, decide the world championship. You're effectively taking money out of someone's pocket because you went off track like a centimeter and didn't gain any advantage. There has to be a smarter rule to enforce those track limits violation because I agree that they have to be solved. Otherwise it would be just uh, IndyCar carnage and you basically have everybody on the green because why not? And then you have to uh, have to um, have the safety discussion again. Because those green lines, they have their um, they have the right to be there. But I don't like the last lap uh, penalty because you are effectively taking money out of someone's pocket because he went off track for a centimeter. And to me, it's not fair. Yeah, it's it's a fair point, you know. Um, I mean, track limits discussions are the most thankless discussions you can have, probably in any motorsport, but especially in Grand Prix motorcycle racing. It's just a nightmare no matter what way you look. The problem is you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, because as you rightly said, if you don't, you end up with an IndyCar situation where everybody's out wide just because no one's going to enforce it. The problem is if you enforce it too rigidly, you're deciding championships and bonuses and salaries based on centimeters. So the truth is, I don't know what you do. I mean, there's a reason race direction get paid way more than I do, because I wouldn't want to be doing that. And I wouldn't want to have to decide what you do and where and when. So realistically, race direction probably... I mean, they'll have to rewrite the rules at some point, I agree, and they'll maybe have to install technology in the side of the track to maybe grade the severity and whether any advantage has been gained. But at the moment, probably the first thing you can do is just enforcing what's already there. I don't like it. It leaves a bad taste in my mouth as well. But I suppose if injustice is happening to them all equally, then at least no difference is being made. 
I mean, that's the very best defense I can make of it, which isn't much, but that's all I've got. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I totally understand it because somewhere you have to draw the line. You have to have an exact line where you say, this is okay and this is not okay. And uh, this is tough enough to do, but I completely agree to say, okay, everything that's on the green or the blue or whatever is not okay. And everything what's on the curb is okay. But I, first of all, I have a problem how these tracks are designed because usually the curb is here and then there's this kind of triangle which goes back to the track. And those triangles are way too, um, I don't know how to phrase it correctly, way too fast to go back on track. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're too they're too sharply angled. Yeah, there's no sharply. there's no allowance for the thing to get back on track. You're absolutely right. And now, if you're on the curb, you have to pull the bike back to track to the track too much because otherwise you would be on the green. So, first solution would be to put a proper exit there that everybody can uh, exit the corner how they want to without running on the track. Because if you went if you go off the curb. Okay, that's back limits, pretty clear. But if you are on the curb and just go back and then there's this weird triangle, that's kind of bullshit to me. And in the next part, even if you go over the curb for like a centimeter or two centimeters, it's not okay, okay? <laughs> it's not, okay. It's not okay, but it's not worth like costing someone a race victory because what if uh, a sponsorship deal uh, gets uh, done because somebody wins X amount of races and now you have like, or podiums, you have like a rider who goes onto the podium and uh, there's a sponsor who says, okay, cool. Uh, and now the rider doesn't go onto the podium because of the stupid rule, even though he should be. And now the sponsor says, fuck, you know, or sponsor sponsorships after the season when you have a world champion who will get more sponsorships than a, a runner-up, you know, all those kind of things you are affecting with this stupid rule where in, in the bubble, you can say, okay, off-track is penalty and no uh, off-track, but it's way bigger than that. And that's the issue I have because you are effectively deciding championships. And the problem with deciding championships is that you are deciding who gets the money and who don't, you know? Yeah, I mean, this is the thing with enforcing rules and deciding championships. It's not about, I mean, it's kind of about, but it's not as much about deciding who gets a trophy at the end of the season as it is about deciding who gets money and who gets, you know, more opportunity, who gets more sponsorship investments, all this kind of stuff. The problem is, is that it's just such a difficult thing because you either enforce it too strictly or you don't enforce it strictly enough. And that's just the nightmarish balance they have to try and fix. Now, I suppose my, well, my side of it is I agree with you. I mean, Isan Guevara is on the last lap. He hasn't gained anything from it. It's evidently accidental. There's no intention to go out wide. He shouldn't be punished on the basis of that because there's nothing that suggests that it, benefited him in any way the problem is if you then allow that then you've got other situations in the future where that happens and it ends up becoming a massive headache for race direction more than anybody so the one thing i do agree with that you said is on these racetracks they do need to be redesigned to allow for that need to come back into the actual track these um runoff points where we have the green on the edge of the track that obviously determines track limits 
they are too harshly designed. There needs to be a there needs to be a gentler slope out of the track to give more area to let people get back on the track. If you just do what you said and you have the curb here and then you just triangulate it, you're not giving anybody a chance to actually move back on track in time. And so that leads on to everything we've just said, you know, riders losing races and so on and so forth. So I do think one big issue that can materially be fixed is change the runoff zones because they're too sharp. Yeah, it could be. It could be. But uh, the problem is I don't have a solution either. Maybe give him like a small time penalty when you say, okay, if you go out this far, you get like a tenth. Or if you go out this far, you get two tenths and so on and so forth, you know. But um, in this instance, it would, uh, would punish uh, Isan Guevara more harshly than uh, it did. But You know, it, it's a tough one. I don't have a solution either. But what drives me crazy is that race direction is so incompetent in so many uh, areas, like the Model 3 race in Le Mans or the Model 2 race in Portimao, where they have no clue what they're doing. Or the penalties now in Mugello with Arbolino and uh, with uh, Suzuki, where they have no clue what they're doing. But track limits is like the point uh, where they say, okay, now we have to uh, enforce it as strictly as possible. And we have uh, to have sensors there and everything, you know, where I'm like, it, it drives me really crazy. And uh, it drives me even more crazy that I don't have a good solution for it. Well, Because, we're going to think of a solution. Yeah, because, you know, when you go to those tracks and say, okay, you have to um, you have to redesign the uh, the curves, then maybe some car series will go, okay, but this is bad for us because of X, Y, Z, you know? Those are all, it's such, it's so much bigger than MotoGP. I mean, even in MotoGP, it's a big problem, but it's bigger than MotoGP because if you redesign the track, then uh, maybe there are some other issues or maybe it's like a money thing. I don't know, but I mean, if they can... Uh, they can put those long laps in there they can uh, change the curbs too but yeah i don't know that's that's the big problem i don't know well you know what in the coming episodes we'll think about it and we'll try and find a solution because it is a problem that needs to be fixed i do agree um i mean i think probably the best basis for a solution is maybe that small time penalty where it is punishing and it's punitive but it's not impacting the actual race result necessarily so say you go over by two to one to two centimeters you get a tenth of a second added on to your time you go over by two to four centimeters you get half a second added on to your time i think the punishment needs to be gradiated because this uh blanket punishment for going over doesn't make any sense Um, basically, Isan Guevara got the same punishment if he'd just gone over to the other side of the track and come back in as going over by a centimeter. That I don't agree with. That's too punitive. That's too punishing. There needs to be a less severe punishment for a less severe infraction. That's probably where we need to work towards. Yeah, and there has to be some kind of measurement where you can say if you go off track this far, you gain this much. Because when you say, okay, if you go over by a centimeter and get a tenth, uh, tenth of a second for a penalty, uh, maybe that's way too harshly, you know? Maybe uh, in Moto3, you get demoted to fourth, even though you won the race. Could be possible, but um, 
yeah, there has to be some kind of measurement where you say, okay, this is what you gain and this is what we penalize. And we need to penalize more than you gain because otherwise uh, everybody would do it. It's, it's a tough one. It's a very tough one. But uh, there's one thing uh, in Model 3 I want to point out because Andrea Migno was exceptional in the last few laps because he was it was like a seven or eight rider group not not a big group from Mugello standards and he was in the back of the group and I was wondering what is he doing and I thought okay maybe he will uh, wait for the right uh, moment to occur and then uh, on the second to last lap he went he flew past everybody and uh, was uh, in second for the last lap and this to me showed how experienced and how smart Andrea Minio is because even though it didn't play out how he envisioned it, it was a very, very smart tactical to move how, how you need to position yourself in a Moto3 race. He could have managed the last lap a little bit better, but in general, it was a, a very, very smart uh, move from him how to position yourself. And that's something young riders should uh, probably do more because those positioning is more or less everything you need in Moto3. Yeah, definitely agree. I mean, Andrea Migno is such a great rider. He's a very, for a rider who's so young, he's very cerebral. You know, he's very, very calculating and he's very intelligent. And I'm really glad you bring that point up because that's something I noticed a lot as well. His judgment and his judgment of when to move and when to overtake and when to basically fly past the rest of the pack is brilliant. And that is the hallmark of a champion as much as consistency and everything else we've talked about. That judgment in the fine moments of when to move, when to overtake, when not to, those are just as much hallmarks of a champion as being consistent and being fast. I think Andrea Mino showed a lot there, even though we definitely should have managed the last lap a lot better. I agree with you. I was really impressed by that choice. And it was very brave as well for Mino, because like you said, he could have sat back, assessed the situation and been more passive. But the fact that he took the initiative and tried to at least do it, he deserves a lot of credit. Yeah, sure. So uh, I guess we covered everything. I hope we uh, didn't forget something. Um, was a bit of a freestyle episode. I hope everybody enjoyed. And uh, I guess next time, next week is Catalonia. We will have uh, like our usual structure back again um, because there won't be any uh, 24 hours again. <laughs> yeah. So um, do you have anything left? No, um, I think we've covered everything very well there. Another fantastic weekend in the world of Grand Prix motorcycle racing. Mugello, you are beautiful. You never disappoint and you have not disappointed yet again. I look forward to talking about it again next year. But for now, it is onwards to Catalonia. I forgot something. The meme oh, of the week. Oh, meme of the week. Oh, yes, of course. How could I forget meme of the week? How, I mean, I hate myself. I'm very, very sorry. I mean, uh, I it you, so it's fine. No, but that's my responsibility in this show. That's like my thing that I'm in charge of, meme of the week. Um, let's see, me. I mean, again, wait, I'm not going to say that one because we will get cancelled and demonetized if I show it. But um, let's see, where was that other one? 
I'm going to go with this one, uh, the Jeff Goldblum from uh, Jurassic Park. You did it, yeah. you crazy son of a bitch. You did it. That was really good. I like that a lot. <laughs> Mark going back and reach on track after the restart. That was pretty lit as well. I mean, as always, it was a great weekend for the meme work, but those two really stood out. Yeah, that's nice to hear. Thank you very much. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We will see or hear each other uh, in one week and after Catalonia. So I hope everybody has a great week and goodbye.